Good morning. And you know that uh, here, here in the States, we have an online class. So here in the States, it's been Thanksgiving week, week uh, celebrated uh, Thursday. And uh, for those who get the notes, I put a little history of Thanksgiving in the notes, along with multiple other countries around the world who celebrate Thanksgiving at this time of, of year as well, if you would like to have a little history about that. So it's in the notes. We'll get, we'll get started here with prayer and give some thanks to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We thank you for the way you have designed and built your universe to run on principles of freedom and love. We thank you for what Jesus has done to bring us the truth and and provide for us uh, salvation. We pray that you will be with us today, that our minds will be enlightened, and that we can penetrate through the the misunderstandings that have so often confused us, that we can see your plan for for us at this time in earth history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly of the sanctuary, and the title this week is Our Prophetic Message. Our Prophetic Message. And as you all know, uh, within the Seventh-day Advent Church, the prophetic message is generally focused on the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. And I thought we could start by looking at those and maybe decompressing those a little bit today. And if you want to follow along with the text, it's Revelation 14, 6. We'll look at the first angel's message, and then I'm going to ask to decode it. Decode the symbols and what it means. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to the whole, to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So as we, let's decompress the symbols. What do you understand the angel to represent? Is it an angelic being? Is it represent, or is it a symbol for something else? A messenger. So it's a symbol for some movement or some entity that gives a, a message. Flying through the air, what's it symbolize? Speed and global impact. Yeah. Uh, eternal gospel. This is this is a good one because this one is has been debated for many years. But what do you th- what do you what would you describe? He's got the everlasting eternal gospel. What is that? The classic answer. What's the classic answer? That we can be saved through Jesus Christ. That's the classic answer. That we can live eternally with God because of Jesus Christ. Is it good news that we get to live eternally with God if God is the kind of person Satan alleges him to be? No, it's it's about God. And is salvation, Christ dying on the cross, uh, good news in eternity past? Back before even Lucifer was made, had Jesus died on the cross. No, this is eternal good news. It's always been true, always will be true. And I'm going to suggest that the eternal good news, the good news that never changes, is the, is the news about God himself, who he is, uh, his character, how he runs his universe. Fear God. As we go through the lesson, you're going to discover there's a couple of meanings for that. I think in the context, it means to give awe, admiration, respect, uh, love and adoration to God, not to be terrified. Give him glory. Give him glory. Glory represents bright, shining lights. We have big firework shows. We can give him glory. Or is it character? We give him glory by revealing his character in the way we live our lives. We glorify him in our lives. In the hour of his judgment, the classic interpretation, and we will dig into this portion here in just a moment, but the classic is the hour when he sits in judgment, record books are reviewed, judgments are pronounced, and sentences are meted out. I think that's maybe misdirected. The hour of his judgment. We are to give him glory. We are to reveal his nature because the hour in which he is to be judged has finally come. The hour of his judgment. Paul says in, in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. And if you think about you being in a love relationship and somebody lies to you and your spouse about your spouse having an affair... And even though it's not true, if you believe it, if you believe your spouse is now cheating, and your spouse is loyal, but your spouse wants to have you back, and your spouse knows you're a victim of a liar, what will your spouse need to do? Won't they need to prove themselves, prove their innocence? So who's being tried? Whose reputation is on the line? The innocent person is being tried. And so God has been alleged falsely. We believe lies about him. God has done nothing wrong, but he loves us. He wants us back, so he puts himself out there for us to examine and make a judgment about. The hour of his judgment has finally come. And thus we're called back in this hour of judgment to worship him who made, her, worship the creator, worship the designer, 
not the dictator that has infected Christianity. And then the second angel, it says, The second angel followed, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And again, angel represents messenger. But I'm going to suggest to you the second message cannot be effectively given until the first message has been effectively given. You hear what I just said? The the second angel cannot give its message if the first angel hasn't given its message. So what happens if we have never actually given the first angel's message but an imperial distortion of that message? How has the message been distorted? Well, it depends, as we've talked in here for over a year now, how do you conceive of God's law? Do you conceive of God's law as the design parameters upon which the Creator built His universe to operate? Or do you see it as an imperial set of rules coming, come down like a Roman dictator? The judgment in this view then is not seen as coming to the right judgment about God, but about God sitting in judgment and determining our guilt or innocence, meeting out punishments upon us, and worshiping the creator in the first angel's messages is distilled down to and interpreted to mean the single act of going to church on Saturday. If you do that, then you're, you're, you're keeping the first angel's message or in harmony. It's distorted, and then it's distorted to actually promote Satan's view of God when it's taught that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. In other words, when it is taught, there is no logical reason for the Sabbath. The only reason is because God commands us to, to, to do it, to take the Sabbath, and, and worship on it because of God's imposed command, then what happens is we distort the divine character and we represent God to be like Satan. It's not the first angel's message. And let me give you some data and evidence for this. Wednesday's lesson. You look in Wednesday's lesson, in the last paragraph it says the following words. The Sabbath is a central I- issue in the conflict over God's commandments. As with no other commandment, The designated day of worship is suited for a test of loyalty because it cannot be deduced by logical reasoning. We keep it only because God has commanded us to do so. This is what we teach. So it's supposedly to be representative of the first angel's message. I'm going to suggest to you that it's not. If you look in the dictionary, the dictionary definition of the word arbitrary. Here's the definition for four bullets based on or determined by individual preference or convenience rather than by necessity or intrinsic nature of something. So it's just because someone says so, not because it has intrinsic definition for it. Next definition, existing or coming out of seemingly random or chance or as capricious and unreasonable act of someone's will because someone says to do it. Um, marked by or resulting from the unrestrained and often tyrannical exercise of power, and the last, not restrained or limited by the exercise of power, ruling by absolute authority. This is what arbitrary means. Do you hear the lesson suggesting that the Sabbath is arbitrary? There is no reason, it's not intrinsic, It's uh, but only an external command by absolute authority. That's their allegation. What was the historic Adventist view? back when our church was founded. This is out of Ministry of Healing, page 114. Let it be made plain that the way of God's commandments is the way of life. God has established the laws of nature, but his laws are not arbitrary exactions. What are they not? Arbitrary. Every thou shalt not, whether in physical or moral law, implies a promise. If we obey it, blessings will attend our steps. God never forces us to do right, but he seeks to save us from the evil and lead us to do good. This is out of Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Christ came to save fallen man, and Satan, with fiercest wrath, met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the captivity which had bound him. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. Notice what's happening here. God is trying to enlighten us. Satan is trying to take truth coming from heaven and distort it in some way and give it to us in a way that it darkens us instead of enlightens us. He sought to cast a shadow across the earth that men might lose the true view of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct on the earth. And notice again, the primary issue is to make God unknown to us. 
He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. Here we go. No reason. He's got power. It's an arbitrary test of obedience. This is Satan's allegation against God. Are we taking Satan's view of God into the first angel and going to the world and representing God as Satan would have us do? He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes belong to the character of Satan. The evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. The only way in which Christ could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. Now, this is very easy language to understand. Set men right, if you want to use theological terms, justification. Keep men right, sanctification. The only way to justify and sanctify was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. It was revealing the truth about who God is. To distort, dispel. The only way the spouse who, who is, is alienated and believes that their other spouse is, is a cheat and doesn't want to have anything to do with the only way they can be set right in that relationship is for the innocent spouse to make themselves visible and familiar to their eyes. To, to reveal that I am truly trustworthy, I have not cheated on you. And that truth dispels the lies and wins us back to trust. This is uh, Heavenly Places, page 8. From the beginning it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God that he might secure them to himself. Therefore, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as one clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving, that he might be feared and even shunned by men. This is review in Herald May 6, 1875. The law of Jehovah dating, now this is the law of Jehovah dating back to creation was comprised in two great principles. Anybody want to guess what those two principles were? She quotes Jesus here. That's it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great principles. It says, the, uh, it says the principles were more explicitly stated to man after the fall and worded to meet the case of fallen intelligence. Th- this was necessary in consequence of the minds of men being blinded by transgression. And what she's saying here, the Ten Commandments were not always in existence. The Ten Commandments were added because of man's darkened mind because of sin. The principles of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, were always in existence, expressions of God's character. The design protocols upon which he built life, the principle of giving that nature operates upon, this has always been in existence, but that distillation for human need was given out of love. Angels didn't need to worry about honoring mom and dad or having sins passed down through the generations. That was a human need. And the Sabbath itself isn't, is measured by the rotation of this planet in relationship to the sun that was, didn't exist until day four of creation week of this planet. Yet, in Job chapter 38, it says the sons of God sang together for joy when earth was made. So there were already beings in the universe, intelligent beings, singing for joy before the Sabbath was even built. Graham Maxwell always says that the Ten Commandments were given as an emergency measure because God's children were misbehaving. Yeah, well said. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's exactly what she says here. The nece- the nece- this was necessary in consequence of the minds of men being blinded by transgression, by misbehavior. Yeah. This is at a confrontation, page 75. The apostle gives us the true definition of sin. Sin is transgression of the law. The largest class of Christ's professed ambassadors... What would we call Christ's professed ambassadors today? Christians. Christians, yeah. The largest class of Christ's professed ambassadors are blind guides. They lead people away from the path of safety by representing the requirements and prohibitions of the ancient law of Jehovah as arbitrary and severe. In other words, when we have a quarterly that says the Sabbath has no inherent value, it just because God uses his authority to declare it to be holy, and it's a test of obedience, we're a blind guide. That's what we are. It's not the truth. Is there any wonder the three angels' messages have not done its work? This is out of Signs of the Times, number 18, 1889. It's the last one of these quotes. Christ came to our world to become a sa- our sacrifice. He came to discover... It's interesting how this is worded. He came to discover to our eyes the gems of truth. 
Did you hear that? He came to discover to our eyes the gems of truth. What's that implying? Who needs to have discovery? Yeah, he, I just think it's a fascinating way to say that. He came to discover to our eyes the gems of truth, to place them in a new setting, the framework of truth. When Christ came, it was to engage in the conflict with the enemy of God and man on this earth in the sight of that uh, universe of heaven. But why was it necessary to wage warfare in the sight of other worlds? It was because Satan had been an exalted angel, and when he fell, he induced many angels to join him in the revolt against God's government. He worked in the minds of angels as he works in the minds of men today. He made a pretense of loyalty to God. Think about that. Think about history of human race. Think about those who have pretended to be God's representatives and lead people in worship through, through history. Aaron, the first high priest, built the golden calf. Look at the, uh, who led the children of Israel into Baal worship. When Christ was here 2,000 years ago, who was it that was demanding his blood and working most aggressively to kill him? Look in the Dark Ages. What occupation of people were the people who were most intent on keeping the Bible out of the hands of people? With the pretense, it says... The largest, uh, yes, he worked in the minds of men. He made a pretension of loyalty to God, and yet he argued that angels should not be under law. He inculcated his ideas, his rebellion and enmity and hatred of God's law. Uh, It originated uh, in the minds of the angels in heaven through his influence. He caused the fall of man through the same temptation with which he caused the fall of angels. Now, I just want to say what she said here. What she's describing is in heaven, Satan attacked God's law and infected the angelic mind with distortions about God's law that caused a third of them to rebel, and he did the same thing in the minds of men. Does anybody remember, because I've got the quote in the notes here, what that original attack on the law was? This is Zarvage's 761. I stuck it in the middle, and then we'll come back to finish out the quote. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. God's law is an imperial set of rules without any inherent consequence that requires the ruling authority to investigate breaches in the law pronounce judgments, and inflict punishment. This entire theology that has infected Christianity is part of the the wine of Babylon coming from the little horn power because they accepted a change in God's law. God's law is not the design parameters upon which he constructed the universe to operate. It is instead this imperial list of rules that he must now punish. Every sin must be punished. And God is the punisher of sinners. Continuing on with the other quote. And in the world... He proposed to work out his principles of rebellion. The battle had to be fought, that all might behold the real nature and results of disobedience to God's moral standard. He represented God in a false light, clothing him with his own attributes. Christ came to represent the Father in his true character. He showed, now get get your mind around this question, this quote. He showed that he was not an arbitrary judge ready to bring judgments on men. Wait a minute. The three angels' message. We've got it. The hour of his judgment. The hour that he's going to sit up there and he's going to judge us. Wait, but Jesus showed he's not going to do that. In fact, Jesus himself said that all judgment is given to me. The Father is going to judge no one. Those are Jesus' own words. But we have been so infected with this idea that God's law is a set of rules that justice requires punishment. Why is the second angel's message? Oh, the three angels' message. Why has the second angel's message of the three angels been ineffective in calling a people out of the confused system of beliefs? My view is because the first angel's message has not been presented in the right light. We have not presented God's character correctly. We have not presented the good news about God correctly. We have not presented the truth about God's law of love, the design protocols for life, correctly. We have, not, we have continued to promote an arbitrary law by an arbitrary God. Thus, we go out and we call people in a system of arbitrary law to leave that system and come to another system where they're going to be tested by an arbitrary law. Why should they leave the one they're in? 
they're still going to be burdened under the, and trapped under the impression, oppression of worshiping a dictator God. Second angel's message, Babel in the Great equals confused Christianity. Speaking with thousands of different voices, ideas, and doctrines. And if you remember, according to the Christian Encyclopedia, there are currently 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support them. 34,000. We're confused. We speak with many different voices. There isn't a unity among us. Not only that, Babylon gets confused when you move. There's not a lot of confusion when it comes to the laws of health, when it comes to the laws of physics, when it comes to the law of thermodynamics, when it comes to, to the laws of, 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 of respiration and all these things. It's not a lot of confusion. It's pretty straightforward. But when we start going down the tax law, it gets confusing very quickly, doesn't it? This is arbitrary law. This is just made-up law. Rules that have no inherent consequence, it gets very confusing. And so Babylon is a system of confusion because we've accepted God's law is imposed. And then within that context, we've merged man-made rules with God's government and created a, a beastly system of amalgamated ideas. God in heaven is the creator who operates like a Roman dictator. Before we go to the third angel's message, I received this email from an online listener regarding this idea of the investigative judgment being us 2,300 years down the road having enough truth recovered that we are given judgment or discernment as we've talked about in Daniel where it says that the little horn waged against the saints, war against the saints, and was winning until judgment in the NIV was pronounced and the King James was given to, discernment was given, judgment was given. This is the email I got. <clears throat> I'm starting to realize that while it's true, most of Revelation needs to be taken as symbolic of something else. I think mostly, mostly everyone can agree that from a biblical and logical standpoint, it is not all symbolic. Second coming included, for instance, and thus requires careful analysis to see what is what. I'm also realizing that the pre-advent judgment is not exclusively about us judging God to be trustworthy or not. Relationships always go two ways. For those seeking to put away sin, there should be no fear in realizing we too will be judged by unfallen beings and, and God as trustworthy or not based on our actions. The, this reality provides assurance that one day sin will forever be a thing of the past. Reinterpreting the Bible to say it is all about us judging God ignores the other side of the relationship coin. Anybody want to comment on that before I share with you my response? This might be a classic argument that you get if you're trying to present these to people. So think through this idea. I'm going to tell you the key will always come back to how you understand God's law. Always comes back to that. So, yeah, relationships go two ways. But the way one understands the two sides of judgment goes back to how one sees God's law. If you have that imposed law, human law projected back onto God which came through the little horn power and has infected Christianity, including Adventism, then we see God sitting in judgment and heavenly beings judge based on our actions. When we see God's law as the design protocol for life, then we realize, as Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, that the actions, you say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you look at one with lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. Christ was saying that the actions are actually manifestations of a heart problem. And thus, the reality of our condition is, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit working in the life, our inherent biological birth, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, inevitably results in bad acts. Only through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives can we do good acts. Anybody have a problem with that? It's regenerational. On our own, separated from the power of God, we can only do bad acts, and those are not the problem, primarily. They are symptoms of the problem. The problem is the heart that's defective and out of line from God's cause. Thus, non-divine beings can observe our behavior by your fruits you shall know them and gain some insight into what's transpiring in the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good, stored up in him and so forth. But God himself doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God judges the secret intents of the heart. In the same way a doctor who looks at an MRI scan examines what's happening inside you and for the same purpose. And the doctor who examines the MRI scan will come to a judgment. 
And we call that a diagnosis. Yes, God accurately diagnoses what the actual condition of each heart is. And our actual heart condition is determined by whether we trust God and open our heart to him. That's what determines our heart condition. And whether we open our heart to him or not is determined by how we judge him. Do you follow that? It always goes back to how you see God. How do you judge? Do you trust? If you trust him and open your heart, stand at the door and knock. Anyone opens their heart, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. If you open your heart to God, transformation, regeneration, and healing takes place. And God, when he looks in, he sees. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The law has been written on the heart and mind. We've had circumstances of the heart by the spirit. We've been reborn, recreated within. The old is gone. The new has come. All the metaphors are the same. Transformation within, if we trust God. But if we don't trust him, then we don't open the heart and God looks in and he sees the actual condition of our heart. So the idea that God judges based on our actions, based on our actions is what was said, is an artifact. It's an artifact of the Roman infection of Christianity. And it's needed, though, for the babes in Christ, who, according to Paul, focus on actions and therefore are not acquainted with righteousness. This is Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 6, 1. We have much to say to you about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish the good from the evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Do you hear what he's saying? Notice the children, the spiritual infants, are focused on acts that lead to death. In other words, on being judged by their actions, their behaviors. This is not righteousness. It's not even acquainted with righteousness, according to this text. This is childishness. This is like an adult brushing their teeth because mommy has a rule, and if they don't brush their teeth, mommy will judge them as being bad. Yes, there was a rule when you were a child, and when you were a child, that's how you thought. But now that you're an adult, you have to put away childish things and stop focusing on the rules and the bad acts and realize that those behaviors are an expression of your heart and character. This penal theology that God has rules and he must judge us if we don't do right is childishness. And Christianity is filled with children who as children need the rules to help them, but who never grow up to understand what righteousness really is. What is happening is that people find themselves at different levels of development, intellectually, morally, relationally. God wants them all, wants to save them all, wants to reach them all. So God uses a language at times, designed for children because he's got kids, spiritual infants that he wants to reach. But sadly, those children who were told mommy has a rule, brush your teeth or else you're going to get punished, never grow up to realize that was just an intervention for your childlike mind. And they then make theologies based on the child's rules. Many of you are familiar with Kohlberg's stages of moral development. I want to just review those with you really quick because what this does, it shows the different mindsets that people have and why we have such, uh, why we are stuck as an organization in this childlike legal presentation of the three angels' messages that obstruct the messages from actually calling people out of Babylon. Stage one in the moral stages of, of development is punishment and obedience. Punishment and obedience would simply be the avoidance of physical punishment and deference to power. The immediate physical consequence of an action determine its goodness or badness. Thus, the atrocities carried out by soldiers during the Holocaust who were simply carrying out orders so that they could avoid being arrested and punished is examples of this primitive level of obedience. It doesn't matter how it was right because my commander said to do it, and if I didn't do it, I would have been shot, so it was the right thing to do. Stage two, instrumental exchange. This is the marketplace exchange. And by the way, Israel, when they left Egypt, they were at level one. They did what they did because the slave master was going to beat them if they didn't. And that's where they were at level one. And so God met them at level one and brought them out of Egypt. And you're going to notice he very quickly tried to move them to level two. Here's level two. Marketplace exchange. 
uh, of marketplace exchange of favors or blows. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Do unto others, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality. Vengeance is considered a moral duty in this mindset. Israel at Sinai. God is trying to move them from level one slave to level two. You can't just go do anything. You have to limit it to an eye to an eye and a tooth for tooth. But sadly, much of the Middle East still operates on this level today. They've never moved past it. And that's why you have this constant demand for vengeance because vengeance is required. If somebody's done you wrong, the law requires you put my eye, I've got to put your eye out. It's a law. It's the rules. Very primitive. Stage three, interpersonal conformity. Right is conformity to the behavioral expectations of one's society or peers. Individuals act to gain approval of others. Everybody's doing it. One earns approval from being conventional and respected by your peers around you. Israel, of course, moved into this level after the judges when they demanded the kings. We want rulers. All the other nations have them. We want to be like them. And it'll be the right thing. We've got to move into this level of functioning. So they were slaves, and they went to eye for an eye, and they moved into this level. And uh, God dealt with this um, problem because the kings, as you know, led them into idolatry. And remember, not just be like them by having kings, be like them by worshiping their gods. This is what they were doing as well, this marketplace. I mean, this um, um, interpersonal conformity. They were conforming to the peer pressures around them. God helped them break this need to conform to peer pressure with the 70-year captivity. And coming out of the 70-year captivity, God assists them with his discipline to enter stage four. Stage four, law and order. Respect for rules, laws, and, and properly constituted authority. Defense of the social and institutional order for its own sake. Justice normally refers to criminal or forensic justice. Justice demands that the wrongdoer be punished and that he pay his debt to society and that law abiders be rewarded. A good day's pay for a good day's wage. Injustice is failing to reward work or punish demerit. So if you don't punish sin, then it's unjust at this level. Authority figures at this level are seldom questioned. He must be right because he's the Pope, he's the conference president, he's the pastor. He's God. We don't ask questions. He's, he said it. Authority says it. That's it. We don't ask questions at this level. Israel at the time of Christ was at this level. This is where they operated. A legalistic system of rules that must be kept for the rule's sake. Rules say she was an adultery, she must be stoned. We've got to obey the rules. You can see this progression going through history. There is a stage four and a half um, before, because there's six stages in moral development. We're level four. There's a four and a half, which is kind of an unofficial stage. That's between uh, the law and order stage and the um, the, the stage five, and this is when college-age students typically have come to see that conventional morality, just a list of rules that are relatively arbitrary, that have not been tied into a higher principles of living or the design protocols for life, just a list of rules that you keep that don't make sense anymore, they break away from it and go into some wild living for a little bit of time. The hippies of the 60s would be representative of this until they realize that there is a larger reality and things start bearing in on you. Stage five. Prior rights and social contract is what it's called. It says moral action is a specific in a, spe, in a specific situation is not defined by a reference to a checklist or rules, but from a logical application of universal abstract moral principles. Individuals have natural and inalienable rights and liberties that are prior to, prior to society and must be protected by society. Retributive justice, which was seen to be right in level four, is repudiated in level five. Justice demands punishment with self-evident in level four is nonsense in level five. Justice, as we took that in our lecture on November 9, biblical justice is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. This is what Jesus was trying to teach them when he was here on earth. There's no need to punish this woman in adultery. Neither do I contemn you. Go and live a better life. All humans are valuable, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the lepers. We don't want to condemn them and throw them out. We want to deliver them and save them. This is what Jesus was trying to teach. They didn't get it. And then level six. An individual who reaches this stage acts out of universal principles based on the equality and worth of all human beings. Persons are never means to an end, but are, an ends, in them, uh, but are ends in themselves. Having rights means more than individual liberties. 
This is the golden rule model. A list of rules inscribed in stone is no longer necessary. Why? Because where does God write it in the New Covenant? I will write it in your heart, unless you can have scriptures that, can, that will conform to this. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, the law is good if one uses it wisely, but the law was not given for, for the righteous. It was given for the murderer, the slave trader, the adulterer, the pervert, the slanderer, the gossip. This was what the law was given for, for those. And if you understand the purpose of the law that he says in Romans, the law, I wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. It was through the law that I understood it was wrong to covet. So the law was a schoolmaster or a diagnostic instrument. It says it's a mirror we look into to see our defects. So metaphorically, the law law is like an MRI. The written law is like an MRI. And what's an MRI's purpose? To look deeply inside you to find the defects and what's wrong. But the MRI is not designed for the healthy people. The MRI is designed for the sick people to find what's wrong. So when you're healthy, you don't need the MRI. It's only when you're sick you need it. Same thing with the written law. The purpose of the written law was to expose sin and help us realize our sick condition and lead us to the heavenly physician for healing and transformation. But once you're healed and transformed and set right, the purpose of the written law is over. It doesn't need to examine you and find more defect because the defects are gone. Um, At this level, God is understood to say what is right because it's right. His sayings are not right just because it's God who says them. God says them, uh, says what's right because it actually is right, if you follow that. Persons at this level accept, uh, have accepted God's invitation to come and reason with him. I like that. Isaiah 1, you know, the name of our class, come and reason. Jesus operated at this level. The New Testament church lived at this level. And the apostles taught. Thus, if you read all the, the, the law written in the New Testament, it's always what? The royal law is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, If you'd love, then you're doing what's right. There is no commandment against love. And then Kohlberg had a few observations about these stages. And you might want to take note of these. Stage development is invariant. What that means is one must progress through the stages in order. And one cannot get to a higher stage without passing through the stage immediate below it. In stage development... Subjects cannot comprehend, this is a big one, they cannot comprehend moral reasoning at a stage more than one stage beyond their own. They can't comprehend it, it's beyond them. In stage development, movement through the stages is affected when cognitive disequilibrium occurs. That is when a person's cognitive outlook is not adequate to cope with the dilemma they're in. And I see this in my practice all the time. Patients who were raised in that legal model, if you pay your tithe, go to church on the right day, eat the right foods, um, you know, don't break the rules, everything turns out well. And then they come see me decompensated because they ended up with cancer. How can this be? I never ate meat. I've been a vegetarian my whole life. I exercise. I always pay my tithe. I went to church on the right day. How could I have cancer? It doesn't, I, I'm not supposed to have this. I, I kept the rules. Now they're, in, they're distressed. See, when, the, when, when, when a moral el- uh, dilemma arises that their construct can't, allow for, then it causes disequilibrium that allows them to finally start comprehending and thinking outside their, their box. And then four, it is quite possible for a human being to be physically mature, but not morally mature. Oh, sure. And then Kohlberg believed that only about 25% of persons ever grow to level six. The majority remain at level four. Law and order, the rules, the penal justice system. Example, the Bible enjoins or teaches the principle of modesty, humility, and wise stewardship of our money. That's the Bible. Those are Bible principles. Applications of these principles might preclude the purchases of expensive jewelry, furs, flashy cars, and other items. A person functioning at level six would have no problem applying these principles and living modestly. But a person functioning at level four, on the other hand, will make a list of rules about such things as you're not allowed to wear jewelry or cosmetics or red dresses, or whatever it might be. But they would not even notice a flashy car or a lady who wears a brand new dress every week because those things are not on the list. You following me on this? So when I grew up, it was okay to wade on Sabbath as long as the water didn't reach above the knee. Once it goes above the knee and you're swimming, then, then you're in sin. Anybody remember this kind of stuff? Or a more classic example, Cotta Springs. You know, it's, it, it's sin to go out and eat on Sabbath because you have to pay with money. So when you go down for a retreat at Covenant, uh, at, uh, Cut of Springs, you've got 
the opportunity to purchase ahead of time your meal, which they give you a ticket for. And then when you go to the cafeteria, you can take this ticket, which is a piece of paper that now has value for goods and services, and you exchange that piece of paper for your meal, which is goods and services. But if you pull out a dollar bill, and what's a dollar bill? It's a piece of paper that has value for goods and services. I'm confused. can't use that here. You see, it's, it's a rule. It is not a moral principle anymore. And this is why kids leave the church. Because kids can think. And we lift these rules rigidly at level four, and it makes no sense whatsoever. Kids think and go, this is nonsense. This is ridiculous. If God is like this, I don't even want to be part of his kingdom. And we have to actually, you know, and this is one of the reasons why I think the, the three angels have now called people out of Babylon. How can you call people out of a confused mess in Babylon to a system like I was just describing? You can't do it. It's a still confused system. So stage theory and the atonement. Let's look at the atonement theory in these different stages. Level one, man sinned and offended God. God responded with angry vengeance, taking the life of Jesus. Now, if you were at our November 9 meeting, you'll notice, uh, you'll remember there were some quotes in the lecture where this is actually taught, that God killed Jesus at the cross. Um, level two, God somehow struck a bargain with the devil. A marketplace exchange of, of Christ's life paid for the, uh, as a ransom to the devil and trade for the devil releasing his hostages. In the popular version, Satan found out too late that God had conned him. And Jesus gets to come back to life too. This was actually depicted in um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by uh, Nar- the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis when the, witch, uh, when the white witch has uh, one of the sons of Adam and, uh, and uh, Aslan goes and, and sacrifices his life and sets the son of Adam free, but then... The white witch is tricked, Aslan then get, comes to life, and, and it's secret magic of a long time ago. It's level two. Level three and four, law must be kept. Man broke the law. Someone had to pay the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that penalty. The integrity of the law is maintained. That's classic penal substitution theology. And level five and six, um, he demonstrated that separation from God is death. Why have you forsaken me? God didn't kill him at the cross. Since we uh, separated ourselves from him, not him from us, he is not our executioner. He allowed Satan to play out his hand, exposing his selfish character for all man and angels to see, and thus erasing all sympathy for the accusations of the fallen foe. God's character is vindicated. Atonement becomes at one God did what it took to win our love and trust, destroy the infection of sin, and restore us into unity with him again. Neither God nor his law, defined as the eternal principles upon which life is based and his government is built, change. Neither God nor his law change. But our understanding of God and his law changes, and in that change of understanding, our relationship with him changes, and we are changed and transformed in that process. So where are you on this moral hierarchy? Where are you in the developmental stage? Where do you experience the majority of our church leadership on this moral hierarchy? Have we, in your opinion, taken the first and second angels' messages to the world? Have I put you all to sleep? What do you all think? Have we done it? Mike? So I understand the moral development model applied to individuals and to some ideas, theological ideas. Can you also apply it to societies? For example, if monarchies are a level four, is democracy a level five? You know, I was, I was pr- trying to apply that to Israel coming out of Egypt, and then when they've developed those different stages, Egypt, and then the eye for the eye, tooth under the judges, and then the, the kings, and then the law and order level. Yeah, I think you can. I, I don't think we're going to experience a level five, six under a human government. Human governments operate under coercive pressure. That's their method. They operate under threat of intimidation. You do it or else. Why is it you all actually keep the speed limit? Well, there's a few people who actually believe it's their, their moral responsibility to not drive fast because they don't want to put anybody else in danger. But the most of us keep the speed limit because we don't want those little blue lights coming up behind us and, and, and giving us a ticket. I mean, am, am I just, is it just me, guys? Come on. <laughs> Isn't that right? So most human governments, I think, operate at level four, law and order. So you don't, you don't think a democracy is a step above a monarchy? It depends on the monarch. The monarch could be a dictator or a monarch could be a benevolent monarch, and that could be actually uh, very similar to a democracy. 
So it really does depend on the monarchy. Uh, the, 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 mon- the monarchies are much more vulnerable to exploitation because of the carnal human heart, and power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so people with that type of power, they, they inevitably tend to be corrupted. So the democracies where they spread the power out and have checks and balances for, and why, why do most people do the checks and balances? For selfish reasons. It's like you're taking my power. Oh, no, you don't. So they've pitted the, the, the system. Our system is pitted to, to, to try to find the best balance you can have in a world governed by people with selfish hearts. So we spread and dilute the power out rather than have it centralized in one person or even one body. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't, can't think of a government on earth that represents level six. So the third angel's message can't really do its work until the first two do their work. So we have a work to do to tell the truth about God, the eternal gospel, the eternal good news of what God is like, and call people back to worship the designer, the creator who built things to operate in a certain way. And then to point out that Babylon, this system of imperial law that has infected Christianity, is fallen and confused, and this is the way it really is. And then we can go to the third angel's message. And the third followed and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark in his, of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Now that text is used by a lot of people to promote this dictatorial view of God. You see what he's going to do to you? See what's going to happen? Let's, let's decode it. Angel again is messenger. Loud voice. Message, intense message heard all over the world. Worships. You know, worships, you know, says, um, any, if anyone worships the beast, worships. What's, what's worship talking about? Is, is it, is it, does it necessarily mean a religious service? No, it means values the doctrines, adheres to the principles, practices the methods of the beast, regardless of denomination or religious affiliation. You practice the methods, value the principles, then you give honor and worship and adore the beast. Beast and image is a merger of religious and political powers, particularly the merger of religious rhetoric with human law constructs. Religious rhetoric, human law constructs merged, creating a dictator god and political religious organizations that will use coercive tactics. No one can buy or sell, save him as the mark of the beast. Coercive pressure is being brought to bear to, to force people into line. Mark, something that distinguishes one as a follower of the beast system. Forehead, this represents the true believer and the penal legal God who must punish. You're the true believer. Hand, the practitioner, those who practice those coercive measures for convenience, even though they don't believe it's right, they're going along. These would be people who would have, would have gone ahead with the Nazis, even though they didn't think the Nazis were right, just to protect self. God's anger and wrath. And we've gone over this many times, so I'm not going to go through all the text for it, but God letting go, releasing his restraining hand, allowing the unremedied sin to take its course. Burning sulfur. The Greek translated burning sulfur is theon. It's the neutered form of theos, which is the word for divine or God from which we get words like theology, the study of God. And it actually means the fire of God's presence. It means holy incense or holy fire. And you see this in the Old Testament when Ezekiel used to, Ezekiel describes Lucifer in heaven walking among the fiery stones of God's presence. Or uh, Daniel 7, when Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him and thousands and thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands stand in this fire. And the text makes it clear because the text in Revelation says this fire happens in, quote, the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And this is that fire that we talked about in our seminar and other places, the fire of God's glory, the fire of truth and love, the fire that does not burn material substances. It's not the fire of combustion. It's the fire that consumes sin and deviations from God. And it's the fires of truth and love that burn through lies and selfishness. Smoke. Smoke is what's left behind after something is burned up. Thus, it symbolizes the history of the lives and the choices of the lost, the memory of what they chose and did, which is remembered by the saved forever and ever. We never forget the lessons taught us through the battle between Christ and Satan and why the wicked are lost in the end by their own choices. Forever, of course, represents eternity. And we'll remember all these things for all eternity. No rest. The mind is never at peace 
or rest in deviation from God's design, and they never enter the eternal rest or reunion with God, those who deviate from God's design. Keep the commandments, live the law of love. That's all it means. Lives in harmony with God's design. We live the law of love. And faith, faithful to Jesus, we represent God rightly and tell the truth about God. So I thought I would read to you my paraphrase of the three angels' messages. It says, Then I saw another messenger flying in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear, resounding voice, Be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love, because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the spring of water, which all operate upon the law of love. Then I saw a second messenger following the first, proclaiming throughout the world, Don't trust Babylon the Great, a symbolic description of religions that misrepresent God. It has fallen into lies about God and intoxicates the world with its pagan views of God, maddening them with its adulterous idea that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. Third angel followed them and proclaimed in a voice heard throughout the world, If anyone gives worth and honor to the beastly system of coercion by choosing the methods of the beast and thus marking themselves as loyal in heart by embracing the character of the beast or marking themselves as loyal in deed by practicing his methods, they will reap the full fury of unremedied sin when God lets go his protective hand. They will experience immeasurable torment of mind and burning anguish of heart when they stand in the God's fiery presence and are bathed in unquenchable fires of truth and love, all in the very presence of Jesus and the holy angels. And the memory of their suffering and the lesson of their self-destructive choices will never be forgotten throughout all eternity future. There will be no peace of mind, day or night, for those who prefer the methods of the beast and model after him, nor for any who choose to mark themselves as followers of the beast. This requires patient endurance and part of the healed who live God's methods of love and remain true to Jesus. What do you think? Do you feel like the church has taken and fulfilled its prophetic mission to take this message to the world? Do we have a mission still to do? Thoughts, questions? There's a lot more in the notes. Um, so I guess we can move on to, to Sunday's lesson, if you'd like. <laughs> the lesson talks about the persecution that occurred during the 1260-year period. And you know the traditional view of the 1260 years started in 538 CE when Justinian's general Belisarius defeated the last of the Aryan nations, the Ostrogoths, and drove them out of Rome and turned the city over to the Bishop of Rome. Ended 1260 years later in 1798 when the French general Berthier uh, entered Rome, declares it a republic, and takes the Pope captive, and he dies three years later in exile. Because of this prophecy, this period of 1260 years of the Dark Ages and the physical persecution, burning at the stakes, crusades, inquisitions, many have concluded that the war against the saints is and was a physical war. What are your thoughts about that? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about adultery and murder. What did he say about those behaviors? They're manifestations of what? Of the heart. And I'm going to suggest to you that the actions of the church in the Dark Ages, when it persecuted physically, was not the actual war against the saints, but they were the symptoms of the real war going on against the saints. And the real war going on against the saints was 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war, as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. The real war going on against the saints was infecting the minds of men with distorted views about God, particularly the imperial law construct. And if you remember the law of worship, this is one of those laws. I mean, we've talked about all these design protocols. One of the laws, one of the design protocols, by beholding, we become changed. We actually neurobiologically change our neural net, our neural circuits change based on what we spend time viewing, admiring, worshiping, esteeming. By beholding, we become changed. This is in psychiatry and psychology. It's called modeling. It's a law of worship. 
Therefore, the reason the church persecuted others and violated human rights was because it had infected itself with lies about God and believed that God, in order to be just, must punish sin. And if that's how God is, and we're God's representatives on earth, then we must go out there and we must investigate and we must find deviations from our standard orthodoxy and we must punish those who deviate from our orthodoxy because this is what God does. We must be like him. Tim? Yes? Is it possible that um, there's no real hope of acceptance of this particular um, perspective on... on uh, you know, religion, true religion, because of the fact that it would create a new transparency that leadership could not could not stand up to. I'm going to tell you, um, in, in 2,000 years ago, there was a big parallel between our organization and the organization that Christ was part of 2,000 years ago. There's big parallels, guys. If you haven't ever looked at those parallels, look at those parallels. They were people that were looking for the advent of the Messiah. They were people called to be a witness. My, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. You are to be a nation of priests to go out and evangelize the world, to prepare the world for my coming, my advent. This is what they were there for. They had the Sabbath. They had the health message. They had the sanctuary message. They had the writings of dead prophets. We have writings of dead prophets too. And uh, we, we, they had all that. Yet they had such a distortion about God's character that when he came and walked among them, they hated him and they killed him. Did they not? But amongst that leadership, there was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. There were still members in leadership whose hearts were, were open to the movements of the Spirit, who became followers of the true message. So I suspect there is in leadership people who are open and will follow the true message. But organizationally, and this was when people, anybody ever ask you if you're an Adventist? You ever get confused on how to answer that question? I do too. See, think about this. When Christ was here 2,000 years ago, and somebody said, are you a Jew? What would they have meant by that? Are you one of these Pharisees and Sadducees, hypocritical people who don't care about people, walk by the Samaritan, don't help them out, uh, the woman at the well? What are you doing, a Jew talking to me? You, know, you, don't, well, you don't talk to women. It's like, it freaked them out. Jews don't do that. They had so misrepresented what Judaism is, but Christ is what Judaism was supposed to be. When you look at Jesus, that's what a Jew is supposed to look like. You see? And so if somebody says, you're a Jew, well, he said to the woman at the well, uh, basically, hey, you know, I- I'm going to talk to you by his behavior. He's talking to her. But he ultimately tells her salvation is of the Jews. But he told the Jewish leadership, you, you search the world over to find a convert, and when you convert him, you make him twice the son of hell. <laughs> do, you see the, do you see the issue? Yeah. See, their system had been corrupted, but Jesus was still representative of what that system was supposed to be. So there's a true version of what it was supposed to look like found in Jesus, and there was this corrupt version that they took to the world. In Adventism, I think it's the same thing. I think we have a corrupt version infected by penal substitution theology, where we have an imperial dictator God who will use his power to torture people in the end. Some will be tortured many days as God miraculously keeps them alive, causing them to pain and suffer until he kills them. This is this perverse thing that has taken over Christianity and taken over Adventism. And then we have true Adventism. Represented by Ellen White, by the way, one of the founders of our church, who when she, after 1888, began to teach this very thing I'm telling you about, they shipped her to Australia. Let's get her as far away from what we know is right as possible. We're in charge here. Get her out of here. And down under Australia, she wrote Steps to Christ, Christ's Object Lessons, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, and Desire of Ages. And you read those four books, and they're going to tell you everything I'm teaching you here. And this conflict has been going on, and our church has been asleep at the wheel. I talked about last week the the parable of the ten ten virgins. And Ellen White says that that parable is, she says that uh, Daniel 8.14, Daniel 7, Malachi 3.1-3, and the parable of the ten virgins all represent the same event. Same event. 8.14 tells you when. Chapter 7 tells you what that discernment is given to the saints in Daniel Daniel 7. Daniel, uh, Malachi 3 tells you that the cleansing, he will come to his temple suddenly as a launderer's soap and a, a refiner's fire to refine or cleanse the Levites, the priesthood of believers. We're being cleansed in this time period as we come back to the truth about who God is. The spirit temple is being cleansed. And yet the five wives and the five foolish are all asleep. We're asleep. Well, how do we, how do we get asleep? Because the second angel, Babylon has fallen and has intoxicated us all with her wine. What does wine do to people? Puts us asleep. 
we're asleep at the wheel because we've believed a penal legal justice system in which Jesus paid our penalty. All our sins, past, present, and future, are laid upon Christ at the cross. He punished, they were punished in Jesus. We just accept that. We have an investigative judgment going on in heaven. He looks at our record books, and our record books are being cleansed by by pardon and stamp by our names because we claimed his blood on our behalf. We're asleep at the wheel. We're not actually lighting the world to prepare a people to meet Christ. This is what I think is going on. I probably got about halfway through the notes. There's a lot more in the lesson. Um, so let's go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You're so beautiful. The way you've designed your kingdom, so wonderful. It makes so much sense. Yet so many of us were raised on a, an idea and a system that wasn't sensible. It was actually confusing. Just like Babylon, confusing. Lord, we want to do a work to lighten the world, to tell the good news about what you're really like so that people can come to see the true nature of your character and and make that right judgment to open their heart and trust you and the Spirit will come and transform and write the law on the hearts and minds and and we can come out of that confusion into, into an intelligent relationship with you. Lord, we ask that you'll bless us all here. Lighten our minds. Write that law on our hearts and minds. Enable us, empower us. Bring more friends and, and fellows to the, to, the, to the cause that we can lighten this world because we really want to see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.